1: Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My
2: name is Noel. They call me Ben. We're joined as always with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccans. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. We're pretty excited about today's episode, folks, because we're diving into something that is near and dear to our hearts and hopefully to yours, especially nowadays with the uh, with the U.S. government it committing. That there are unknown things somewhere out there in the sky. That's right. We're talking about UFOs, but we are not examining this alone. We're talking about a very specific story of UFO encounters, and we're doing it with the help of the one and only Toby Ball, investigative journalist, podcaster, the creator of Strange Arrivals. Strange Arrivals Season 2 is out now as you listen to today's show. Toby, thanks so much for joining us joining us. Well, thanks for having me back. That's right. You're our returning guest. I think Saturday Night Live rules say once you hit number five, we have to give you a jacket.
0: You were on a short list, my friend. We don't have that many returning guests. I don't know if it's because they don't want to come back or what. No, I'm kidding. Uh, But no, it is very, very excited to have you back. And uh, such a cool way of extending what you did in the first season of Stranger Rivals with this, you know, very familiar story, but I think one that's not familiar in terms of like how it sits in the overall lore of UFO sightings.
1: Well, yeah, let, let's get into that, Toby. The, the Rendlesham Forest incident is known by a lot of people as kind of the Roswell incident of the UK. So why don't, why don't you just tell us what it is like overall, what happened, what supposedly happened, and then we'll get into what you found throughout your season.
5: Yeah, it's the Roswell of the UK. It's an encounter that takes place over three nights. There's actually the first and the third night are sort of major nights. The second night, there's there's a little something that happens. Uh, but essentially, the first night is Christmas night on uh, 1980. And I, I should take a step back. This all takes place in Rendlesham Forest, which is a force that's in between two Royal Air Force bases, uh, Bentwaters and uh, Woodbridge. And they're while they're both sort of technically under the control of uh, the British Air Force, in fact, they're U.S. Air Force bases. And Bentwaters actually has nuclear weapons. So this is 1980. It's the height of the Cold War. So, you know, it's Christmas night, it's not a whole lot going on. There's sort of a routine patrol around the perimeter. And one of the two people in the Jeep, uh, this guy Bud Steffens, sees a light in the sky that descends into the forest, just a matter of maybe a quarter mile from where they're driving. And he asks uh, the guy who's with him, whose uh, name is John Burroughs. He says, you know, have you ever seen anything like that? Burroughs says, I haven't. And they see a light coming from the forest. Uh, they're not—they're not sure what to do because the forest is actually off base, so they don't have clearance to go out there. They call into headquarters. Uh, headquarters sends uh, this guy uh, Jim Penniston, who's slightly higher ranking, and a couple of other people to meet them at this gate. So they get there and they—they they talk it over and they think that maybe it's a, a plane crash. Uh, that that seems to be the best explanation they can come up with with that limited data. And they decide what they need to do is to go off base, go into the woods to see, you know, if they're survivors, see what the situation is. Uh, so they leave their weapons with Steffens and, th- and three of them take off in a Jeep, drive the Jeep as far as they can into the forest and then proceed on foot. They have trouble with their radios. They leave one uh, guy, this guy Ed Cabansag, sort of as a relay in between the jeep and where they're going. They see this light coming at them through the forest, and then so Burrows and Peniston approach the light. Apparently, the light gets brighter. They dive behind like this this berm, like this raised area of ground, and then the stories sort of diverge slightly. And I'll, I'll give you the, the the sort of less involved version, which is and this is Burroughs' version, is that they get up and they see the light is is receding through the trees and they follow it. And they don't actually see a craft, but they keep following this light and they go out into a field, which is near like this very, very small village. And the, the light continues to go away. They try and follow it. They don't catch it. They eventually turn around. Uh, and as they're coming back, they see another set of lights in the forest. This is sort of a blue and white set of lights. And at that point they return, uh, to base and, and, and report in. So that, that's the first night. And I, I assume we'll, we'll wait and I'll, I'll tell the, the longer Penn yeah, story. Yeah. yeah, later. yeah, yeah. yeah okay. so great scene I, setting. For I,
2: sure. I already have so many questions yes. and I'm sure that the audience does as well. So, uh, one of the things our fellow conspiracy realists are always interested in when we when we hear spe- specific details or timelines of high profile ufo uap sightings is the point where the stories diverge in your previous work on season 1 of stranger arrivals uh with the betty and barney hill case uh, you had really dug in and found those those intersection points, right, of differences in uh, reports, uh, differences in opinion or speculation. Uh, but one thing that's different about this is that, as, as you had mentioned to us earlier when we are chatting off air, this this event occurred in the 80s. So there are people alive and lucid who, who have personal experience, or first-hand experience with this, When you were talking with people and found these divergent points in the story, Toby, uh, did people seem to agree to disagree? Was there anyone saying, like, no, insert person here has their facts wrong? Or were they just saying, well, that's how I remember it?
5: Yeah, that's an interesting question. The three people I interviewed, who are really the three main voices on Rendlesham, uh, of the people who who actually had encounters. So that's that's Chuck Halt, who we, ha- we haven't talked about yet, John Burroughs, and Jim Penniston. I mean, they're all they've they've all worked together on things and worked separately on things, and as time has gone on. You know, certainly in Penniston's situation and Halt's to a somewhat lesser extent, Burroughs not so much, like their stories have changed slightly. And I think there is, and I talk about this a little bit in the podcast, and I don't think it's like in a malicious way, but there is, there's a sense of who owns the story, right? Like who owns your experience. So when I talked to them, there was a little bit of that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Oh, I don't know, that guy kind of panicked. And as we'll, I'm sure, talk about in a little bit, you know, this guy was stuck in suspended animation and didn't experience this thing. So I'm the only person who actually knows what happened, you know? So, and and it was with different levels. I mean, there, I think there is some, I mean, there are books involved. So um, there were two of the people were kind of sort of either, I, I wouldn't say accused each other of lying, but of of not having the facts straight and sort of promoting a, a, a narrative that wasn't uh, borne out by what actually happened.
1: Yeah. So this is something you get into later in the, in the season. I don't want to spoil too much, but yeah, this okay. is a major theme I think of the show uh, co- competing narratives and motivation for having a separate narrative. Right. Uh, a lot of the diverging information seems to come when television producers or, you know, a lot of times television producers or somebody else comes through and is interviewing one of these individuals for a high profile show. And then it seems as though maybe the stories really begin to, to diverge that way. We've talked on this show before how, you know, a producer a lot of times has a, a need to have the most compelling story possible. And the lines between, you know, what is nonfiction and fiction blur a little bit. Uh, in their needs so like and, and it also it also goes into some of the government's motivations for some of the things that happen later in the season so uh, in, in your mind do you think these guys when you're talking to them do you get a sense that they believe like their own story so much so that it's truth to them or that did you get a sense that maybe there's something else going on there Oh, Halt for sure does <laughs> So
5: when I talk to John Burroughs, I I feel like his story has been fairly consistent. He kind of talks about what he knows and what he doesn't know. You know, he has some thoughts about what it actually was, which, you know, I don't know how accurate that is. And Chuck Halt, I feel like he feels very strongly. And what's kind of interesting about his story is that he kind of sticks to the story. But like these things that get mentioned kind of in passing at the time, take on new life, you know, it becomes a little more dramatic than it was when he first talked about it in, you know, late 1980, early 1981. Penniston has a whole new narrative line that that pops up well after the fact. And so I can't judge on how sincere he is uh, or anything like that, but it is something that, that really kind of pops up out of nowhere. And again, it, it actually... The, the critical moment, as you were talking about, it comes when they're taping. I think it's Ancient Aliens, maybe, uh, but one of those shows, and it's on camera. Like, th- there's a clip of it that you can find. I don't know if you can find it on the internet, but somebody shared it with me to show me like what happened. Um, and it's he f- he finds this binary code in this in this notebook while they're f- while they're filming, and and that's kind of the key moment to this next like longer, completely strange narrative that he tells.
2: And this is really important because this is something that we discussed uh, in season one in our interview, which is th- there's this dilemma between uh, perceived sincerity and uh, just the treacherous nature of memory, right? And in your in your work as an investigative crime reporter, uh, I'm sure you've seen eyewitnesses uh, get things wrong, but not because they're trying to be misleading. It's simply because every time you remember something, you're remembering the last time you remembered it. Uh, so with this, the reason I wanted to ask originally about how people treated these different divergent narratives or opinions is because um, that is one of the things that, you know, like the hardcore skeptics really hinge on when they talk about uh, any kind of inexplicable encounter. Uh but I don't I don't want to disrupt our timeline too much because I know I know a lot of us are listening at home or possibly in a spacecraft and wondering, well, hey, what happened
5: on day 2? So day 2 is actually not a ton happens. There there's a brief encounter where a car is on patrol. It's not even clear if there are one or two people in the car um and a light actually goes inside the car and you know, so traumatizes the woman officer who's in the car, who, whose name I'm I'm forgetting at the moment, that you know she's taken off duty and is actually, I think, leaves leaves uh, Bentwaters, uh, goes to another base. I tried to track her down without success. Um, I I heard from somebody else that she kind of is laying low and not talking about this. But that was really the only thing that happened. Like, I, I don't even know if that would be much of a story if it wasn't bridging nights one and night three. But night three is is the next night when there's like a big uh, encounter that's, that's seen by a whole bunch of people.
1: So you mentioned this other person, Halt. Now, can you describe who that person is and what they did to add to what we know about this incident? Okay, so Chuck
5: halt, uh was the deputy base commander, so uh, he, he was fairly high up in the in the hierarchy on base. So there was a party, which would be the night of the twenty seventh, and the base brass are there, and you know an airman comes in and says the you know the lights are back, and so there's some conversation. And, you know, people for the most part don't want to deal with it. Like I don't think it was taken so seriously. So uh, as it's been put to me, Chuck Halt uh, got the short straw. So he has to like pull together a group of people to go out into the forest to see what's going on. So he gets a a group, including this guy, Morgan Nevels, uh, who apparently is sort of a – photography enthusiast. And so he gets brought along thinking that maybe he'd take some pictures. They get uh, night vision goggles. uh, And there's some question about whether they had been trained on them and knew exactly what they did. Uh, A Geiger counter. And uh, they tromp off into the woods to try and figure out what's going on. At the same time, John Burroughs has been hanging out with some of his buddies on base and they decide to go out and check it out for themselves too. So you've got these two groups who – Kind of, they eventually meet in the forest. Halt, you know, he goes to where his understanding of the original landing spot was. They see this light through the trees. He takes some Geiger counter readings. My understanding is that even though it wasn't, you know, at zero or whatever, that it was basically normal background radiation. They use the night vision goggles, which increases light. Twenty thousand times or something. So he through the, the night vision goggles. In addition to be like nearly blinded by how bright things are, he thinks he sees a little bit more detail. It looks like an eye looking at him. Uh, but the light keeps coming and disappearing, coming disappearing. And they do the same thing, right? They they kind of try to follow the light. They go out into the into the field. The light is sort of receding from them, and then they see what what they think are a whole bunch of lights in the sky, probably above uh, Bentwater's air base. And they watch it for quite a long time, are reporting back, aren't getting much back from headquarters, wondering if there's radar on any of these things, not getting anything back on that. Uh, and eventually, they're just cold and tired, and they they leave. And, and you have an actual recording
1: of that occurrence, right? Right,
5: right. So Halt when that was I, I didn't mention this, but when Halt goes out, he brings a tape recorder, like a 1980s tape recorder. And uh and so he's taping what he considers to be important moments because he's only got so much tape, right? And and batteries. So he's turning it on and off and on and off and on and off. So you, but you do hear, I mean, it's this real-time record of these moments while they're watching it. And and you can tell, I mean, they're not doesn't sound like they're faking it they honestly <laughs> don't know what what's going on uh and they're kind of freaked out about it but not not scared I mean Hall is just you know he's kind of laughing in amazement at what's what's going on around him um so you know they come back and they report in and eventually the Air Force the the people who are in charge the the Americans Don't really know what to make of it. In all honesty, one of the things that's interesting about the official response is it seems like they're never really all that concerned. But because you have American service people marching around off base in the middle of the night, there needs to be some kind of explanation. And so uh, the base commander has Halt write a memo that he's going to give to the uh, Royal Air Force guy who's like sort of technically in charge of the base, sort of explaining what was happening, right? And so this is, you know, this is the morning, early morning of the 28th. So we're still in the holidays. So this base commander is actually off, I believe, in Wales, like visiting family for the holidays. So Halt writes this memo. It's just one page. I think there's four points that he makes, and he's sort of detailing both what happened on the first night for as far as he's heard, and then what he actually witnessed. So he writes it, but then he waits until this guy comes back from vacation, like days and days and days, like more than a week, and then he gives it to him. And so that's another thing that will come up later. It's like, well, you know, if you thought, you know, aliens or whatever were, you know, penetrating this nuclear airbase, why didn't you, like, call the guy and, like, tell him right away that this was going on? Why did you wait like a week and a half, to give them this information. Like, it doesn't seem like you were taking it too seriously.
2: Yeah, that's the the thing. Like, reading that memo, which is publicly available now, uh, I think since 1983, uh, under an FOIA, reading this memo was really fascinating because the title makes you wonder just how many memos these guys get. The title is literally Unexplained Lights, you know, Two weeks later or whatever. And with this, what's fascinating is when, you know, when we hear FOI requests, the assumption for a lot of people is that it means whatever document was given was top secret or compartmentalized. But from my understanding, the memo itself was not actually classified. And the response did seem somewhat lackluster, especially considering the the concerns you would have about any kind of security around a nuclear base. In your opinion, when uh, Holt, as you said, pulls the short straw and goes out and he has this equipment and he notices that there's something amiss, um, did he initially come to a conclusion that there was something extraterrestrial occurring? Because I believe that he has gone on record afterwards saying that he personally believes he saw something extraterrestrial. Do you think that was one of his initial conclusions or something he arrived at over time? Because, again, the memo is just like, there are lights,
5: and we don't know why or how. Right. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't know if I have a definitive answer on that. I mean, I think looking back at it, Halt sort of implies that he did at the time, but I don't know if that if that's actually the case, and again, I, I think there's this strange lack of urgency that you think if he was 100% committed at that time to its extraterrestrials hovering above our nuclear weapons, that he would push a little bit harder to get that to the people who needed to see it. And that just didn't happen. And again, that that gap in time is something that you know skeptics point to. And that the military at the time, like the, the, you know, the government of of, uh, Great Britain or United Kingdom, that was one of the things they said. It's like, we didn't take it seriously because they didn't take it seriously. Like the people who did the report didn't think it was serious enough to bother somebody during vacation. Like they waited until they came back. So, you know. I mean, I've run across things in my job that I don't think are that important, but I would call my boss. Sure. You know? And it doesn't have to do with aliens and nuclear weapons. Well,
0: I mean, you know, for example, we, we, we always talk we always talk about these disembodied lights, this being kind of like a hallmark of classic UFO sightings. And uh, the Phoenix lights, I think, is one of the more recent ones that we've talked about on the show. I actually just realized that it's pretty funny. Kurt Russell, the actor, was the civilian pilot who actually spotted the Phoenix lights and reported them. Um, I, don't, I don't know if we uh, talked about that in the episode, but I was looking it up and it came up. He just kind of casually mentioned it in a BBC interview, but he was flying his son to like visit his son's girlfriend or something. And he saw this like V shaped array of lights and he called it in. (laughs) So, I mean, you know, like, uh, it seems like something you would definitely escalate, especially if you were in charge of overseeing (laughs) the, things of that nature, like nuclear uh, weapons or nuclear facilities. But um, I'm wondering, you know, Ben, you made a really good point early on in this uh, interview uh, about how this was in the 80s, so there was a lot more stuff out there in terms of reports of these kinds of sightings, in terms of pop culture, like uh, the Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out in 1977. I'm just wondering if, like, you think any of that stuff fed into or detracted, maybe, from the stories or from these folks' willingness to, to report them. Maybe they thought Because there was all this stuff out there, they would be seen as quacks or something if they, like, you know, reported anything of that nature.
5: That's a good question. I know that Penniston in particular, but all three of them kind of mentioned that, like, reporting that you saw UFOs was not really a path to success (laughs) in the Air Force, Yeah, you know? I think there's that angle to it, but I also think there's the angle that it's 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 out there. Like you see strange lights, one of the possibilities is, you know, alien visitation. And would that have happened in like 1972 before Close Encounters and and uh, you know before some of this other stuff was in the air? I don't know. And then when you see when we when you uh, find out what the skeptics the kind of the explanation for it is, would would you be more open to that explanation even at the time if you didn't have in the back of your mind oh man this is this may be you know extraterrestrial craft that we're encountering it's this context that you can kind of exist within
0: where it was before that just wasn't there and it was just kind of like WTF. But now it's like, OK, there's a calculus that goes into this decision at this point where based on what we know, what's been reported, what's out there, what, you know, in pop culture and cinema and TV and stuff. It's like, how does this make me look, you know, because there really is like a much more concrete understanding uh, and a divide right between the skeptics and the believers at this point in time
5: well, yeah, and i and I think when you when you add the fact that it's, you know, it's in the military, mm-hmm. um, and the military has gone through, you know the Air Force in particular, has gone through this whole process with Project Blue Book that ended, you know, about ten years before. And it's sort of officially, we're not dealing with UFOs anymore. If you see anything, you re- report it to your local authorities. Don't report it to us. And then when you have people who are part of the Air Force, saying, oh, we were tromping around in the woods and we saw this light and, you know, we think it's extraterrestrials, you know, I think that's kind of a head scratcher. It's, it's, you know, it's like, why why is this happening? Why are you telling me this? What do you want me to do about it? Because we officially, like, you got to take it up with a different authority. Um, Side
2: note, Toby, thank you for uh, putting officially in there, right? (laughs) Some things would later come to light. We'll pause for a word from our sponsor and we'll be back with Toby Ball.
1: and we're back
0: with more from toby ball on strange arrivals season two
1: there's so much to talk about specifically with the Rendlesham forest incident but i i kind of want people to f- have the revelations in the middle of your podcast rather than this one specifically from the skeptic angle mm-hmm. that uh, episode three in particular is one where it feels like your eyes get open to a lot of Data that wasn't available when the original stories are happening. A lot of um, data,
2: line of sight from the <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. And you can you'll get it from the title of episode three. That I'm not <laughs> even gonna say on this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I you mentioned some of the other Project Blue Book and everything that kind of culminated up to before this nineteen eighty occurrence. Um, you talk a lot about J. Allen Hynek. And the kind of the civilian part of the UFO information gathering that was done by the U.S. government. Um, I want to talk about him a little bit specifically in regards to the encounters system that he created. Uh, you'll you'll be familiar with this. Close Encounters of the First, Second, and Third Kind, uh, as well as the additions that came later, the Fourth Kind and the Fifth Kind. And I can't remember, Toby, if last time we talked with you, we had already talked with Stephen Greer or not. But we we had him on the show to discuss the Fifth Kind, um, which, whoo, buddy, uh, it's a whole thing. Uh, But specifically, I want to ask you about Hynek, again, the guy that created this thing, why was he so interested in Close Encounters of the Second Kind? Which is, I think, how you would describe the Rendlesham Forest incident? Yeah, I, that's, it's an interesting...
5: It probably kind of fall in between the first and the second. So the, the Close Encounters of the Second Kind are not just sort of visual sightings, but also involve some kind of physical evidence. And that's, you know, again, it's not... Like a tail fin being found, because we would know about that, right? That would be a big deal. But it's things like burned brush or their markings uh, on the ground where something might have might have landed. Sometimes people may get something that looks like a sunburn or like scrapes or or, or, or what have you. Um, so that was one of the things that with Rendlesham is there did seem to be. Some physical evidence in addition to the sightings, and that's there. There looked like there might have been um, some markings on the ground where a thing might have landed or sort of been rooted to the spot by some other forces. And they saw some stuff through the night vision goggles that's that, where the trees seem to uh glow and, and give off some kind of emanation. <laughs> it's it's kind of interesting in that, uh, the. The guy, this guy, Ian Ridpath, who was a astronomer and a journalist, you know, he went and talked to the forester who lived in uh, Rendlesham Forest, a guy whose name is improbably Vincent Thurkettle. Yeah. And,
0: uh, <laughs> Amazing. Yeah.
5: And then, uh, so Thurkettle, like, kind of comes up, is sort of like, well, you know, and I, I guess we're not giving away what sort of the, the large answer is give
1: away whatever you want to give away. I was being cautious. No, no, (laughs) I
5: I, I get it. So so I, I would leave you to, for the big story, you can listen to um, episode three, but for instance, for these like supposed like landing spots, he looks at, he's like, look, that's, those are like squirrel diggings or rabbit diggings. (laughs) You know, that's, that's, that's what it looks like when a rabbit is digging for food. It leaves these spots and it's not, you know, an eight thousand pound, you know, extraterrestrial craft landing. So yeah, yeah but is he
1: sure? Okay, that's, well, that's, or maybe
5: he's just covering it up. You know, he's part he's, of it. He's, he's been communicating with times. them for years.
2: Yeah, that's one of my my favorite uh, observations. Where uh, when it comes to that close encounter kind, which is a great question, Matt. Uh, the there's this line where it may have been Thurkettle or someone associated with him, and says, "Yes, there are broken branches." In that area, because that's in a forest. And forests have broken branches, which I thought was like <laughs> I, I thought was just enough snark, you know, to, to be the oh, educational yeah. forester. But but one thing that's interesting with this guy with Thurkettle is that he from what I understand, uh he received a visit from some folks before he himself was like made aware of what had happened uh there's uh there's this incident i think it's yeah it's december of course and he says that um it was later in december when some people came to ask him some questions like almost men in black style and what he said is that you know um this the kind of the same vibe he has throughout a lot of things uh he said i i didn't know what they were talking about and then later, I found out, and uh, apparently, he still do- wasn't sure who those folks were. But, uh, but I, I thought, know who they
1: were. <laughs> <laughs> they were <laughs> they were majestic twelve, for sure. <laughs> there we go,
2: there we go. But I, I want to ask too, because uh, there's there's another person that we could maybe introduce here because we talked about talked about uh, we talked about halt how he doesn't uh, he doesn't shy away. Now, or you know, later, from his opinion of what he witnessed, but he is. Uh, this is not a unanimous opinion. Whether or not the storylines diverge, it appears there were some. Uh, there were some folks who were pretty skeptical. Um, there was one that stood out to me, uh, Colonel Ted Conrad, who said that. Uh, I'm just picking him as one example of somebody who disputed. The testimony of these of the men who encountered the these sightings. Do you feel that these sightings get kind of shut down as a matter of course in in these sorts of investigations? I mean, given, like you said, Project Blue Book closing down, given the fact that it was heavily implied this might not be the best thing for your career. uh do, like, do you think they were? there were any fears of like recrimination or ridicule when these guys are reporting this stuff on the part of the air force or on the part of these individuals on the part of uh, these individuals reporting to their superiors. Yeah.
5: My sense and part of it comes from talking to Jim McGahey, who was also in the air force and uh, did some investigation of his own on this stuff is and also just from what you see in the, in the official reaction is that nobody took it that seriously, right? I think they thought, here are these guys. They saw something. It's not something we have to worry about. And I, I think what what Conrad, if I'm remembering this correctly, you know, part of what he really objects to is a Halt in particular, but Penniston and, and Burroughs too, sort of accusing them of a cover-up. And he's like, you know, you should be ashamed to say that. Because you think something happened and we didn't doesn't mean we're covering it up. It's just, you know, you're deluded and we aren't. I, I think is there is the Air Force's uh, take on it. So Peniston makes a comment. I don't know if it made it to the to the series or not, where afterwards he got – he had sort of a guy who sort of was like his guardian angel in the Air Force – and kind of made sure that things went well for him, uh, and I think that was, you know, it wasn't really in exchange for for keeping quiet about things, but it's sort of an acknowledgement that he had he had experienced something that kind of went up went above and beyond uh, what would be expected. Again, this is just something he said. Like I, you know, I've got no confirmation or evidence that it actually happened, but it was part of this larger story that he tells about Rendlesham that nobody else. Can confirm. Do locals in the area
2: at, at this time in in the early eighties? Do locals in the area uh, respond? Do how how do the civilians that are living you know roughly nearby? How how do they digest or encounter? the story of this sighting as in like when do they learn about it um, Or is it treated skeptically is it treated the way the air force is treating it i guess yeah. i'm asking
5: you know i i don't i don't know for sure you know in 1983 when it when it comes out in the in the london tabloids i think that would be the first time they would hear about it i don't know like in the in the years that immediately followed what the feeling was, I know there were some local people who were sort of UFO interested to begin with, who you did some investigation, as you would expect. And now, I guess it's another way where it's a little bit like Britain's Roswell, where it's, you know, you hit all these anniversaries and there's stories about it. And there's still stories. I And I, I, I think I mentioned it in one of the episodes where I was just going through like the last years, you know, just doing a Google search on, you know, British newspapers and the last year's worth of... Rendlesham stories, and they're still, you know, they're still coming up with with theories about what happened. And uh, I was actually interviewed by BBC Sussex, I think, uh, about the podcast. So I think there's still interest, but I think it's more as a weird piece of local history more than you know, we, were, we were visited by aliens. And maybe folklore at this point. Yeah, know, oh, the, absolutely.
2: One of the reasons I'm asking that is because uh, what we found in... Cases like Roswell and in other cases, uh, not even necessarily UFO-related ostensibly, uh, we found that when they happen in more isolated or slightly rural areas, that locals tend to latch on to these things as a way of sort of distinguishing their community or area uh, up to and including Creating a tourist industry, so that's that's why I was asking what their consideration there was.
5: Yeah, I don't, you know, there is a, you know, I, I believe Bentwaters is shut down and Woodbridge might be as well, but there is like a UFO trail in Rendlesham Forest, and they've got a model of what you know, the craft was described as, and, you know, I think they have a little plaque and stuff. But if you go, if you look at Rendlesham Forest UFO on Google and you go to the images, it's like kids climbing all over this, uh, this model UFO. It's uh, so that's, I think that's, it's not like Roswell where they have, you know, UFO festivals and, you know, UFO theme parks or whatever. I mean, I, I don't know exactly what Roswell has,
1: but I know that that's, It's a UFO tourist destination. And with that, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor.
2: and we've returned
1: so i want to blow this out a little bit more even further just from the Rendlesham forest incident because you you end up following so many trails as you go throughout your season you speak with these legendary figures dude in in the world of ufo people that we've been talking about and thinking about for a long time perhaps personally for me one of the most compelling people you talk to is this guy named Richard C. Doty. And when you hear that name, that might ring a bell. We've discussed him before with regards to a documentary from 2013 called Mirage Men to uh, some of the weird stuff going on between. I think it was Bill Moore and oh, gosh, who's the person that was like being fed information uh, from Paul Bill Benowitz, Moore? Paul Benowitz. My goodness. OK, so there's this whole like world of UFO lore that exists around this guy, when you're talking to him, you just you describe him, first of all, as a former professional counterintelligence agent. I want to know if there's anything that didn't make it into the podcast that he told you that was just too extraordinary or you just couldn't believe or (laughs) you're like, that's definitely disinfo. Just anything that you encountered that you didn't put in.
5: Yeah. So I talked to him for about two hours. And so there was a lot of stuff, you know, and I, I kind of signposted hopefully well enough because I think a lot of what he was telling me was sort of consistent and compatible with the disinformation that he'd been passing back in the 80s. Like he's not changing his story and saying, well, I, you know, it's, it's, um this is what, this is the reality. And this is what I was telling people. He's continuing those stories. I'll tell you the one thing that I, I, God, I wrestled with whether to put this in and I actually wrote half an episode about this and then I just decided this is getting too far outside of the scope. But, um, I, and I don't know if you guys have covered this, but Project Serpo, do you know about this? We so, haven't
2: done it on air, but yeah. I mean, okay. I have a passing awareness, yes.
5: So so Project Serpo, and I'm not going to remember the name of the guy who, who ran this sort of UFO email listserv uh, thing, but he got... He got this email from a guy who was supposedly, you know, "quote unquote," a government insider who was leaking, according to him, information about this this secret project. And it kind of goes it goes way back to like the the sort of context to it goes way back to Roswell, where they say, you know, we recovered a live um, alien. Called Eben, I think is what they called him, and uh, so they bring him, and and he's kept for a number of years, and they recover a re- uh, communication device from one of the UFOs, and they get it back working again, and he communicates back to his home planet, and like asks them to come and get him, and then they send a group to come and get him, but but this this alien has died in the in the meantime. But they come and there's a meeting and there's an agreement put in place where there's going to be like this exchange program where we are going to send 12 either military people or astronauts, it's not entirely clear to me which, back to this planet where these aliens come from. And it's a planet that's codenamed by us. I don't know if it's what the aliens call it, but it's called Serpo. So in the late 60s, I believe, I'm not going to remember the exact date, we send 12 people, I think it's 10 men and two women on this spaceship off to this planet, sort of like close encounters, right? The end of close encounters where people getting on the spaceship. So they go there and apparently it's this planet that's largely sort of these small communities, you know, it's, it's got, you know, 600,000 residents or something. It's a little bit smaller than earth. It's got these small communities, although there is, like a central government of some sort. And there's this whole story about how they got into a war, interplanetary war thousands of years ago and all, all this stuff. It, it, anyway, it's, it's crazy. Right. And then, so two of the people died on Serpo two decided they liked Serpo so much, they were just going to stay there. So eight returned to earth and Serpo is in the Zeta Reticuli system, which has two suns. So apparently, the radiation from two suns caused like these tremendous health problems for the for the astronauts who returned. And I think the last one supposedly died in like the early two thousands. But anyway, so I Doty was telling me this story, and and you know, I guess not surprisingly, he's been kind of accused of being the guy behind the story. And he was saying, no, 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 it wasn't me. It was this other guy. And I went with Bill Moore and we met with him and he denied it, but it's pretty clear that it's him. Uh, but he said he talked to, Doty told me, you know, I talked to my, my sources and they said, yeah, you know, some of the some of the details are wrong, but the basics of the story that we sent astronauts to this planet Serpo and then they came back and all this stuff, he's like, "That that's all accurate. Like that's, that's all based on truth. Um, no.
1: Wow! What, what? What? Yeah. So-
5: <laughs> yeah. But it's but it is one of those. You know, it's interesting. And then you're like, okay, so you're a disinformation agent, and this is what you're <laughs> laying on me, right? Um, and I think it's you know it's it's in the context of when he was first putting that stuff out there, and what what people believed at the time, and especially these like people who are deep, deep, deep into the UFO culture, right? What would they believe? And then I think like pushing it to extremes because you want people to believe that they they have like the absolute insider knowledge of, of what's going on.
1: That that's the whole my whole question is leading up to why what advantage does that kind of disinformation give to the United States government? Because that's where it would be originating from, right? An agent of the intelligence community of the United States government. Why would they give that kind of thing to the UFO community of all places?
5: Yeah, so uh, two things. One is Doty was very clear that, like, anything he did was coming from above, right? Like, he wasn't coming up with these things and sending them on. Like, he would get a mission and information. So it was it was being manufactured by, you know, probably Air Force intelligence. You know, I, I think that's that's sort of the question is why did they do it this way? I, I think it's pretty clear that, um, you know, this is, again, it's during the Cold War when a lot of this stuff was going on, late 70s, 80s, early 90s, I guess. I, early 90s is past the Cold War, but late 70s, uh, early mid-80s. And there was concern that because a lot of sort of UFO hunters were going you know, to, to Groom Lake uh, and like going up on these ridges and taking pictures and looking through binoculars and what's going on in, in other uh, Air Force bases. And there was concern that what they were getting was genuinely, you know, top secret test craft, including the stealth the stealth planes. And they were concerned that that particularly the Russians had infiltrated the UFO community and were trying to get whatever information they could From those people who were sort of observing these bases as intelligence. So what their plan was, we'll muddy the waters uh, by putting in disinformation. I mean, I think there's some question about why they put in the disinformation they actually did, especially with Paul Benowitz, which is another story I get into in the podcast, seems sort of unnecessarily cruel, I guess. You know, they they really uh, took advantage of this guy who, I think pretty clearly had mental health concerns and they just exacerbated them, you know, rather than putting them at ease.
2: Yeah, yeah. There's there's the question of ethics, right? In this oh, yeah. kind of counterintelligence operation. I think also, just personally, it's got some big, the these kinds of disinfo stories, if disinfo they are, they have these big uh, suppressed screenwriter vibes. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like uh, this, so, somebody... <laughs> when somebody got their job at the Air Force, right? Because they dropped out of film school, and then they they go and uh, they need to have a, a good thing to muddy the waters. So they're like, "I remember my sophomore college script, SATA Reticuli." Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, like that's. The, I, I see how that could happen. And I, I completely agree with your point about the unnecessary. Cruelty, but I think it's also a very, very good point about the strange game of bluff against bluff that occurred during the Cold War, especially when we know that, if not the majority, uh, at least a minority of alleged UFO sightings later turned out to be, I, I wouldn't say solidly confirmed to be secret craft. Man-made, but uh, there's compelling evidence, you know, that people were seeing stealth bombers and saying this is a UFO. It makes
0: me think. I mean, it really brings the conversation kind of around to the present in my mind with this uh, somewhat underwhelming disclosure document that the uh, the government put out. I mean, there's some fun stuff in there that uh, kind of it really brings up more questions than it gives answers in terms of like the whole category of like secret corporate things like what does that even consist of it's so vague it's almost laughable but um, I do think that the the whole like oh it was like under development government tech that the public isn't aware of yet I think that's been a line for quite a long time and I'm just wondering what you made of that document if you were underwhelmed if it like kind of like brought up new ideas for you or new areas to pursue or if it just kind of felt like a bit of a deflating moment (laughs)
5: <laughs> That's a great question, uh, because I was sort of hoping, you know, I st- I started working on all this stuff, and we had the we had the timeline uh, down before we kind of knew what was going to happen with that report. But when the the timing of the report came, I was like, this is going to be great because I'm spending this whole uh, season kind of talking about the development of of the UFO folklore and what we think we know about UFOs, and then this report's going to come out. And I can kind of tie up the series by by looking at the report and talking about how sort of the assumptions that we've we've kind of built up over the decades kind of play into this report and, and the way we kind of interpret it and understand it. And then the thing came out and it's like, what am I supposed to do with this? You know, there's just not enough there there to kind of tie back to all these other things that we were talking about. So you know, I, I think it's not surprising that what you got wasn't definitive in any way and that it was just, you know, I mean, in some ways it seemed to me like the kind of thing that you put out when you don't really want to do it and you're just like, you know, <laughs> right, let's just right. let's just get this thing done and I want to put it yeah. out there so nobody's giving me that much of a hard time. So I'm just going to kind of yeah. toe the yeah. line. Um, the
2: government equivalent of writing an essay about why I refuse to write this essay.
5: Yeah, yeah. No, I thought, I, that's, I was like, you know, in 10th grade, you know, if if I'd had to write something. So anyway.
1: Um, you need to get Falcon on the phone, Toby.
5: Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, I read it and I was just sort of underwhelmed. And I thought what would be interesting was to see how the different sides tried to kind of stake out that this was sort of confirmatory or at least didn't. Uh, disconfirm what their beliefs were. but quite honestly and, and this is from admittedly like a small sample size of like people who I follow on Twitter and, and websites I check it seemed like after a little bit of of conversation, like it all just kind of died away. you know I think I think people there wasn't enough meat there to really sustain much of a a discussion, So I think people just kind of moved on. Well, it feels by design, though, that
0: it died away. You know, like there was all this hoopla around it and all this kind of buildup, and then the thing came out, and it's like, well, this is all kind of stuff we've already been talking about for a while. It's not really much new uh, conversation to add. Um, so it makes sense, and uh, you're right, Benny, that's a really good analogy. Uh, it's like a book report by someone who totally didn't want to write a book report. Um, but I wonder if that's by design. And if, you know, we talked about on the episode where we cover this document, that there's definitely a much larger, broader report that we will never see. Um, what do you think's in that one?
5: Yeah, I, that, that's an interesting question. I don't know if it would be, uh, like I do, I cover in, in the season, the Robertson and the Condon reports, which are sort of the two big reports that came out of Project Blue Book. And what they did, uh, especially the Condon report, was to take a look at, you know, specific cases that you know, had sort of confounded people and tried to get to the bottom of what it actually was, and you know, there were a few that they said like, we can't explain this, right? So I don't know if they went to that to that level where it was things like like the Nimitz uh, stuff, uh, whether they did sort of a deeper dive into that and and you know, got whatever documents they could and and show them to scientists and try to come to some kind of conclusion. Like I would kind of hope that would be what they would do. Like, I don't know what else you would spend your, your money on. Um, If it's not to take a look at legitimately hard to explain cases. And of course the government, you know, likes to sort of interrogate its own processes. So that might be another aspect to it is what are we doing? Like, how are we collecting this data? What are we doing with this data? who's analyzing it, who's getting the results of that analysis, uh, that kind of stuff. But like when somebody in the Pentagon, you know, gets this mandate from Congress, it's like, we want to know everything you know about UFOs. Like, I think depending on whose desk it falls on, some people are gonna be like, oh my God, are you serious? Like, I have to spend my time on this? And then there'd be other people who would be like, all right, right on. Like, I'd, I've been wondering about that myself. I mean, you know, the Pentagon's Our got a ton of people. Yeah, yeah you know, Personally, it just depends on well. who
2: gets it. I I would say, you know, one one excellent point you just made, Toby, that I, I agree with totally is is the love of self-examination of methodology and process because a lot that the short public UAP report a, a great deal of it as as we all know is is about methodology. And equating to, if you guys really want us to do this, then we need more money. <laughs> and uh, and that's, it's funny because I spoke with some friends and government, and they said, you know, that's pretty common, actually, in, in the most mundane of reports. If you ask people like, to measure water levels in an estuary, part of their response is going to be, uh, you know, point, bullet point seven. Also, we need more money and more time to do this. Uh, So that's while that struck some people as odd, it's very much um, apparently a standard operating procedure. It's a known thing, like a format of an essay. But when when we talk about this, one of the questions that I want to ask you specifically about this story, which is, in my opinion, uh, right now the best, most in-depth and objective examination of the Rendlesham Forest incident – what do you think comes next? Like you know, you. I appreciate how you said like there's this almost cyclical, or dare I say, seasonal reporting, right? In in at least British news, um, do you see do do you see it linking with other things? As Matt said, there are a lot of webs tracing uh, tracing away from this story, right? Different rabbit holes. Um, where what what would you like? the audience to uh, what would you like them to take away from this thing that, you know, honestly, unless you're a UFO enthusiast or unless you live in the United Kingdom, you, you will probably not have near as much awareness of this as you will after hearing strange Rivals season two. So where, where, where do you think this goes and what do,
5: what do you, we hope people get from this? So, uh- you know i think there's two things one is this is part of like the larger theme of this season which is how does what we know about ufo's how did how did we get this information right what are the folklore pro- processes which is not to say the folklore again not to use that as a like it's a fairy tale but it's like it's it's information you're getting from from sort of non-official sources, right? And so how did this develop? And I think what's what's interesting about Rendlesham and a lot of UFO stuff is that, you know, you have multiple stories, right? From the people who encountered it, you've got stories that vary somewhat, and you've got the skeptical explanation, which, you know, varies a lot from them. So in these situations where none of these explanations are taken as being the explanation, right? That's where stories can kind of morph and take on a life of their own, right? And you'll see that, and that's kind of what I try and and demonstrate at the beginning of this series, is that because there isn't any settled-upon narrative as, as being the truth, that the story grows in these different ways, and it branches off in different ways. And then because the, the UFO stuff is, su- you know, it's such a network and there's these people who are involved in different parts of it and stuff. Um, like I did, I brought up, I asked uh, Richard Doty about, about Rendlesham and he kind of said, you know, he heard about it and he took a look at uh, the files and he talked to some people he knew and it seemed legit to him. Right. So he's adding whatever authority he has to this story and. But I didn't follow up because again, this was a major part of our conversation. But I kind of wanted to ask which story, right? Are yeah. you are you <laughs> right. lending your your voice to Penniston's story or to Halt's story or to Burroughs' story? Um, because they're you know, in some cases, uh, the, the, they they rule each other out. Like you can't you can't believe both. So, like in the end, I kind of took a look at Rendlesham as being sort of writ small, like this larger process by which, um and the way I wanted to start it, it, it to kind of give you an idea of where I, I was hoping to head, but we couldn't get the rights, is uh, is there was a, Jimmy Kimmel had Obama <laughs> on uh, this one time, and, you know, they're talking, and he said, I can't remember exactly how it came up, but he said, uh, Kimmel says, if I was president, like as soon as we were done uh, getting sworn in, I'd like run off the stage and go back to the White House. And I'd ask somebody like, get me. I want to know what's going on in Area 51. And, uh, you know, the whole the crowd laughs and Obama's like, well, I, that's just another reason why you won't be president. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I remember and, that. Uh, and I was thinking, you know, what's interesting about that is nobody has to be explained what Area 51 is, right? Even if you don't care a thing about UFOs, it's just ubiquitous in the culture. And it brings with it certain certain, you know, thoughts about government cover-ups and alien technology and and all this stuff. And it's like, how did we get here? Right? How did because the government hasn't put out anything saying this is what's going on. It's all through these sort of informal channels.
1: I don't want to spoil this for anybody listening right now, but you have to listen to Is it the last episode or is it the penultimate episode where Chris Carter and Glenn Morgan are on? Yeah,
5: second to last. Okay,
1: so there, I think it's Glenn Morgan's explanation of how he would write plots for some of the X-Files episodes, which mirror how a lot of the unexplainable or unprovable conspiracy theories that have developed over the years come about, where there are two truths that do exist. You can find them. They're researchable. You, they they are real. Then you put something in the middle of them that's a lie or something you make up, and you connect it all together in a sand. I think he calls it a sandwich or Oreo or cookie, yeah, whatever. A
2: storytelling sandwich. Yeah.
1: Exactly. And he just discusses how every episode of X Files, a show which informed me and countless others about this subject, even though it's not real, but it forms the for, the folklore around. UFOs and a lot of these subjects um, that is mirrored with conspiracy theories it, that are popping up from all corners of the earth about all various different kinds of subjects. Uh, it's the same way X-Files are written. Anyway, just it blew my mind. Uh, highly recommend you check out that episode as you're listening through.
5: You know, just in addition to being able to talk to Chris Carter and Glenn Morgan about the work they did, what I, what I thought was interesting about the X-Files and and, and some of the other uh, media about UFOs, but especially that, because I think that's, you know, that's the biggest, most influential show like this, is the way that it, it both takes from the existing UFO folklore as source material and then outputs this fictionalized version of it that people come to... Sort of internalize as sort of the new folklore, right? So I think it's like this interesting uh, process. And Glenn actually talks about it's a, a episode he does about um, ice cores in in the Arctic. I think where they where they find these worms and oh yeah, and what happens. And then he says that you know years afterwards, people are like, oh yeah, I read the article about that you got that idea from. And Glenn's like. There was no article. I just made it up. It's like, oh no, man! It was in National Geographic. I read it, and uh, and so that, but that's how that stuff enters enters the realm, right? It's like you hear it, and you don't. You remember the story. You don't remember where it came from, and you you kind of process it as, oh yeah, this thing I read about something that happened, which can be a bad thing. (laughs) I mean, you know, it's not always, you know, it can certainly lead to
0: people spreading things that aren't backed in science at all. But uh, I think it's really interesting you point that out because, you know, science fiction at its best oftentimes is prescient, you know, oftentimes has sort of this forward-thinking um attitude behind it, that things that are ultimately pulled out of the minds of these amazing creators do come to pass in some ways. And uh, I think X-Files does a great job of kind of building on that folklore and almost at times like making it these like weird cautionary tales about, uh, you know, certain things in, in society. It's interesting. But, you know, you're right. I think the way you've built Strange Arrivals as this kind of like – I don't know, it's a really interesting thesis about uh, UFO reports being this new oral tradition that's the kind of passed down and kind of gives uh, personality and character to these, like, small kind of off-the-map locations. And um, I think it's really, really well done and, and really thoughtful and uh, really enjoy the show very much.
5: Oh, thank you. I appreciate that.
2: Yeah, well, this is – and this is something that I've I've also been super interested in. You know, we, we've got previous episodes on the ways in which um, – the the ways in which stories of changelings in Europe, uh, centuries and centuries ago, match pretty much one to one with stories of alien abductions, uh, h- history, folklore, uh, these traditions they are uh, reciprocal. They are a two way street. Fiction and fact talk together to get their stories straight. And this is uh, this is an amazing process. Uh, Toby, I have to say, I I was floored by Strange Arrivals, Season 1, and just between just between us and everybody listening, I guess, I, I thought, can, can this lightning in a bottle happen again with Season 2? And uh, over the moon, not a UFO, but over the moon to say uh, that that is very much the case. And we hope that we've given you just enough of a taste that you will immediately... Pause this episode and go straight to uh, your podcast platform of choice for Strange Arrivals Season 2. I believe the entirety of the show is out now as our fellow conspiracy realists are hearing this.
1: But there's a ton of bonus content coming too, right, Toby?
5: Yeah, there'll be a bunch of full interviews with like Chris Carter and Glenn Morgan and... Um, do I'm not going to put the whole Dota. <laughs> <laughs> I, so I can share some choice bits with you guys. There, there's, <laughs> okay. just, there's not enough like parts. To, there's, you know, I would just hate for somebody to jump into it like 15 minutes in and be like, Oh my God, I can't believe that we're sending people to the planet Serpo without me like being able to signpost that, you know, you got to take all this with a huge grain of th- salt.
1: Uh, uh, full disclosure, everybody, I am listed as an executive producer on this show, but I had exactly 0.05% uh, to do with it. Uh, it's just awesome, man. Big fan as, as somebody who barely touched it.
2: Likewise, uh, full disclosure, I think Nola and I both are uh, just big fans here. We're, we're, we're civilians on this one. Uh, but Toby, thank you so much for becoming uh, one of our returning guests. On the show today, uh, we're only partially joking about Saturday Night Live rules. So I think by the, the time you're on here five times, there is some legal requirement <laughs> for us to get you a cool jacket. Uh, and, nice. And in the meantime, while we're waiting for that, where can people go to learn more about your work uh, with Strange Arrivals and also your uh, other pursuits?
5: Um, well, uh, probably the best place is Twitter, which is at, at Toby Ball NH. Um, my website has been sadly neglected, <laughs> based on all the other stuff I've been doing. Uh, but that's a, that's the best place. You can also you can also search my name on Amazon. You can find out more about my books there. And if you find yourself
2: online uh, and you would like to follow up with us as well, we would love to hear your feedback, your opinion about Rendlesham Forest incident and uh, related incidents. What actually happened that December in the early 1980s? Uh, let us know your take. We try to be easy to find online. You can find us on the internet at Conspiracy Stuff on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube.
0: You can find us on Instagram at Conspiracy Stuff Show. And hey, while you're on the internet, why not swoop on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review and then also go over to Strange Arrivals and do the same because it is absolutely worthy of all five of those stars, if not more.
1: Um, and if you want to, Uh, not be on the internet, you can give us a telephone call. That's right. We have a phone number. its three three S T 1-833-STDWYTK. When you call, you've got three minutes. Please give yourself a cool nickname that isn't your real name so Richard C. Doty doesn't know who you really are. He'll get Yeah, seriously. Um, <laughs> say anything you want to. If you've got anything personal to say to us or for the show, leave it right at the end. That would be wonderful. If you've got more to say, then you can fit into that three minutes. If you got some links or some maybe books or anything you want to tell us about you can send us a good old-fashioned email we are
2: conspiracy at iheartradio.com
1: stuff they don't want you to know is a production of iheart radio
0: Your partner in unraveling the
1: mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com.
3: It's my little escape.
4: Now Judy's the life of the party.
3: Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon.
4: Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs>